Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Dope Black Podcast. Dope Black Podcast. According to the New York Times, toxic masculinity has been defined as behavior that includes masking emotions, distress, and maintaining an appearance of solidity. Today, I am joined by Josh Odom on the Dope Black Dads podcast, and we're going to talk about understanding toxic masculinity through the lens of black men. Uh, Josh is a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional with eight years of facilitation, program management, and training experience a Google and Squarespace Black Fellow creator and the founder and curator of Healing While Black LLC, a virtual platform dedicated to mental health and wellness of black LGBTQ people with 65,000 social media followers and 500,000 impressions. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I said before we started the recording, I'm super excited um, to talk to you today uh, because, you know, There's an awful lot to unpick from your background. We've got a lot of kind of um, shared things that you much more exceed than I do. I mentioned I've got my mental health first aid light, but you are a mental health first aider as well as a coach. Um, let's start with uh, Healing While Black. Tell us a bit about Healing While Black. Yeah, so like you said, uh, first, thank you all for listening to me, for having me, Marcus. Um, Healing While Black is an online platform dedicated to the mental health and wellness of Black, queer, trans, and non-human people. Uh, specifically, I started in 2016 uh, based on my own experiences uh, with uh, depression, suicidal ideations, and realizing that not only did the anti-Black racism I received impact my mental health, but also the queer phobia as I do identify as a queer man, um, that also impacted my mental health particularly. And there were a lot of conversations that were happening which did not address that particular crossroads and how uh, Black, queer, trans, and non-conforming folks moving through the world uh, are oftentimes at risk for much more severe um, mental health challenges uh, than our counterparts. So really wanting to uh, put resources for that particular intention and really seeing how it has grown is it's really humbling in a lot of ways. And it's really great to know that um, we are having these conversations and normalizing this and normalizing the ways in which, no, we need to then center all Black lives in the conversations of Black wellness holistically if we're not doing that then we're doing a lot of things wrong and i just mentioned starting in 2016 um the the lgbtq space is you know there's still so much work to be done 
generally, but particularly talking about it in the, in the black space, you must have been almost starting from scratch. Yeah, so it, it's funny because I started in 2016 right after um, the, well, actually right before uh, Trump was elected president. So it was, it was not a great time, as you can imagine. Um, a lot of conversations around um, rates of depression, anxiety. Um, there were moments where I was reading that uh, trans youth were um, either dying by suicide or there was an uptick in self-harm because of the political landscape that had been created. So it was it was heavy. Um, thankfully, I was not uh, doing this by myself. I was able to tap into a number of different uh, friends, colleagues and resources. Uh, Jewel the Gem, uh, uh, Dr. LaDonna Butler uh, from Healing While Black uh, in uh, Florida, who also runs the Wealth for Life. So I was able to see a lot of people who were approaching uh, Black mental health and wellness from a very particular setting and also understood the need to center Black queer folks in this conversation as well. So it was definitely heavy. It is still very heavy. And also knowing that I did have a lot of support from colleagues who did believe in not only just the mission, but also the understanding of Black folks need support, Black queer folks need support as well. So, it's, I mean, it sounds like you're doing absolutely incredible work and it must be heavy, so, so challenging on so many fronts. Tell us a bit about kind of how this fits into toxic masculinity and the black male community. Yeah, so it's interesting because I think we, we're at a place where we're, we throw, we throw around a lot of words, right? You know, everything's toxic. Everything is, you know, gaslighting. Everything is, everybody's a narcissist, right? And we throw around a lot of very potent language. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's necessary. Sometimes it is accurate. And sometimes it may be a misnomer or we can use other language uh, in its place. And so I've kind of moved away from the term toxic masculinity because what are we actually talking about? And I, I, I like to really talk about the impact of patriarchy and in a lot of men, their sense of masculinity is informed directly by patriarchal notions and standards. And I, I saw that we were having a conversation and in some of the notes, we were also talking about bell hooks and we real cool. And I really do appreciate how bell hooks defines patriarchy as the system by that insists on males being dominant and dominating everyone and anyone who is deemed as weaker, primarily women and females, and this need to endorse and perpetuate that violence through acts of physical, spiritual, mental, emotional violence, and seeing how our masculinity is shaped by that system is really important to see how we got to this point and how we're consistently perpetuating these ideas of what masculinity means, what masculinity is supposed to look like. If we start from there, I think that gives us a better ground or a better floor to build off of than just saying, you know, you're a toxic, you're being toxic. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting point. It's something I'm I'm exploring more and more in myself or trying mm-hmm. to understand more. And it's it's difficult to navigate as well. I think for me, I'm raising two daughters. I'm trying to be really aware of, you know, patriarchal society, 
the way that I communicate with them. And I don't know if it's the timing of events or me having daughters at a certain age, I'm even more aware than I was of just how patriarchal um, the world is. For those yeah. who, who may not understand patriarchy, how would you break it down so it's maybe easier for our listeners to understand? Yeah, so I would really, again, lean into Bell Hooks' definition of patriarchy as a system which insists that men and males are the dominant class and they are to be dominated. They are endowed, and this is Bell Hooks' language, they are, we are endowed with the right to dominate and rule over anyone, everyone who is perceived as weaker, really mainly women we're, we're talking about. And that level of domination is supposed to be reaffirmed by our capacity to do violence, whether it be physical, whether it be mental, whether it be emotional, so be it. And you think about that from like a, a systemic standpoint, and a lot of brothers are like, all right, well, that's not me, and that's not something that I do. But then I would challenge you to say, you know, when we were growing up, if there was um, someone who subscribe to a patriarchal standard of what and how a man should act. I'll even ask you the question. Did you hear something to the extent of stop being a bitch when you were growing up or like man up when you were expressing emotions outside of anger, whether you were upset and you started to cry, whether you were actually being happy and joyous, like there's this feeling And there is an effort that starts from a very early age to restrict and and codify acceptable behavior for young boys that then grows and and, and festers into their adult lives. Yeah, 100%. I was uh, talking to my best mate um, this weekend, actually, about making a conscious effort not to do that over the years. And then... I think it was only last year. I remember this so vividly. I I was driving. I had my youngest in the car, so she would have been about six. And I I got some really horrific news over the phone. And I had to pull over because I was just in so, so much floods of tears. Mm. And she was terrified. I stopped crying. I looked at her and she looked at me and said, Daddy, I didn't know that boys could cry. And I was like, whoa. I mean, I've definitely not been trying to hide emotion from you but clearly there's something whereby I've managed to not show this side of me to you before and right. now your reaction is fear right um, and that's something that's really going to stick with me for for a long time mm-hmm. um, and we were saying you know I've, I've never thought like I've gone out of my way but obviously that's coming right back to like you said those moments in your childhood where you're told to man up, you know, boys don't cry, <laughs> all those kinds of things that are still showing themselves in me as a man of 38 years old now. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. I, I can only imagine that that was like a, kind of like a crossroad moment. Like, oh, you hear this from your, your daughter, your kid. And I have had similar experiences with my, you know, younger cousins and nieces and nephews to where like, it's kind of like, it's kind of put in my face around, I thought I was doing this and I thought that I was actively, you know, moving away from this, but clearly I still have more work to do, you know? So I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, I think that's, that's the, for, for me, I feel there's so much more work 
uh, I'm huge into kind of personal development anyway, but yeah. the older I get, the more I realize I've got so much more to do, which can only be a good thing, I suppose. Um, but then it's, it's great to kind of see and hear about all the great work that, that people like yourself and, and um, Healing While Black are doing. Uh, and it's a good point for us to kind of talk about the work that you guys do in terms of not just why you do it, but but how you do it, what kinds of tools are out there. I know that you're a coach as well. Um, and it's really interesting reading about how you approach coaching. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I... Um, it's, it's really funny, and I'll, I'll try to make this very brief. Um, I was in school for my master's of social work uh, when COVID hit. I had a big epiphany toward the end of 2019 to where I didn't want to go to law school. I knew that I wanted to be uh, a mental health practitioner in some way, shape, or form. Uh, COVID upended all of those plans, like it upended a lot of our plans, and I found myself really wanting to do work, um, direct service work with um, with Black folks, especially with Black men of all experiences, queer, trans, um, heterosexual, with more so with queer and trans Black men. Um, and a colleague of mine was kind of not badgering me, but just consistently asking, like, hey, bro, like, when are you going to finish your degree? Like, when are you going to finish stuff? I'm like, hey, man, like, there's a lot going on in the world right now. Like, that's kind of the last thing I'm worried about. And it's like, hey, I, I have people that I want to refer to you. And I was like, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I can connect you with somebody else, but I can't support them in, in that kind of a clinical fashion. Right? I don't want to play therapist. You know what I mean? That's not what I want to do. And then another colleague of mine brought up the idea of coaching. Like, hey, have you ever thought about being a coach? And initially, I was very turned off by it. I'm like, man, I don't want to be a coach, man. Like, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, a life coach, like it's just it left a really bad taste in my mouth because, you know, we have people who we can envision who we don't need to name. But you kind of see their brand of coaching and it just leaves a really sour taste in my mouth. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, and. They were really insistent on, you know, nobody saying that you are going to be a therapist. Nobody saying that you're going to be offering diagnoses or anything of the sort. But you have experiences and you have a knowledge base that can lend itself to be very useful to folks who are uh, moving through their queerness in a way in which they feel unsupported. They're moving through their masculinity in ways in which they're bumping up against um, traditional standards and it's causing them a lot of pain. And thankfully, uh, the beautiful thing that I find myself very fortunate to to offer is I work in conjunction with a lot of licensed mental health professionals, be it social workers, counselors. So I know when to tap out and say this is beyond my skill set and I'm referring you over to this person who I trust and I care for and I would leave in your care. So that is part of my ethos. And a lot of the people that I work with are almost exclusively um, black men of all experiences and a lot of what we talk about is how do we navigate our queerness in ways that are not always safe to do right how do we unpack these things together in a space that allows us to really say well no like you know compulsory or coerced heterosexuality is really traumatic and you may not have had opportunities to explore the depth of this and you think something is wrong with you 
because now, you know, in the age of 25, 30, you're realizing that I didn't have the space to safely or freely explore this part of myself. And it's really damaging. Right. And I that's, that's part of how I approach the work. And I'm thankful to be able to offer sessions, you know, free of charge um, because of community, because of the uh, fundings that I've received through um, great community partners, shout out to the Wild Gifting Project, uh, and also be able to tap in with other folks and, and offer services there. Um, when we were doing the Sunday Survivor Series, shout out to Jewel, uh, we made that space, she made that space exclusively for Black, queer, and trans folks so they can have the space to explore and heal and, and connect with other folks along their journey. Um, and then also, this is this is one thing that I've, I've been uh, uh, flirting with, so to speak, which is starting a book club in which we talk about Bell Hooks' We Real Cool or The Will of Change, all about love, because we also need collective spaces where masked folks can engage in this work for ourselves and really hold each other in not only the collective work, but the collective healing as well. So uh, in a very, in a pretty decent sized nutshell, that has been the work um, that we've been doing over the past two years. And I'm really excited to see how this uh, moves forward. Um, it's still an itch to go back to school to achieve my MSW because I really wanted to do that. And also uh, if that doesn't happen, I'm really content and I'm really grateful that we've been able to support a lot of people, a lot of brothers in their healing journey as well. That's absolutely incredible. I'm curious as well. Um, Marvin, the founder of Dope Black Dads and myself and, and, and other guests, we've, we've talked quite openly about our experiences with therapy and yeah. those kinds of interventions and how valuable they've been for us. We've also talked about just being male, the kind of stigma attached to looking for those interventions, whether it is coaching or therapy, um, and also being a black male, not just yeah. kind of choosing to go down that route and realizing it's an option, but also a lack of accessibility. So. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My question to you really is, are you, it sounds like you're not struggling for clients. Something is obviously clicking where people are coming to you. Um, so how, how are you doing that? But also, um, are you seeing a similar thing? We were talking about it here in the UK where, the, you know, certain interventions just 
aren't quite as accessible mm-hmm. for people. Um, what's your experience in the States with that? Yeah, it's very similar. When I was first going to look for a therapist, um, I just knew I wanted somebody black. You know, I, I, I appreciated the idea of having a black man as my provider. And also I just knew that this person had to be black. Um, also, I, thankfully my therapist right now is black uh, and queer. Um, but I just knew like, I said, I start here and then work my way, work my way, um, toward the middle, so to speak. Um, and the nearest person that I could find, I was living in Massachusetts at the time. The nearest person was like 60 miles away in Connecticut, right? Didn't take insurance because, you know, I didn't have insurance at the time. So that's another barrier, like whether or not this person uh, is taking insurance, whether or not you have to pay out of pocket, um, whether or not this person is um, understanding and, and competent in your particular needs, right? I knew for I knew that the first time I went to the, um, the therapist that I, I was I was seeing, you know, we got to talking and then really starting to, to dive deeper and like, oh, I don't think you really have a, a a base or a framework to assess how homophobia impacts my life. So it's only so far we can go, and do I want to spend my time and my money? with this person if they cannot really delve into their this lived experience that is really impactful and also um, a part of the reason why I'm seeking therapy. So there's so many different uh, barriers that people have to, to, to traverse in order to receive care. And that's why when I, when I have individuals come to me, I'm very clear on like, this is not supposed to be a substitute or a, um, yeah, that's, that's not supposed to be a supplement or a substitute for, you know, therapy or clinical interventions. I'm offering my services as a complimentary service, but this is not supposed to be something that you go to in lieu of therapy. And I be, I'm very clear on that because I want to make sure that I'm offering the best support I possibly can, while also ensuring that they know that there are inroads to other folks who have the training, the licensure, um, the background, the identity that can serve them in the best of their ability to. So um, in, in regards to seeing clients, um, first being very clear in that this is this is who I am. These are the things that bring me to the dance. Um, my blackness informs my queerness and vice versa. And we're going to have conversations around how um, identity plays a role in this. And if that's not something that you want to do, that's okay. Maybe we need to, maybe I can refer you to someplace, somebody else. There's no judgment, no shade on that, but this is something that has, I'm very certain that has brought me the level of, of work that I've been able to do and be unapologetically myself and knowing that these are the folks I want to work with. It's a really interesting point as well in terms of certainly when I studied uh, for my coaching diploma, they were very clear about, you know, this isn't therapy. This is, this is coaching. And if you find you start to work with someone who doesn't need you, it's your duty to make sure you find the right person, the right intervention for them and say, you know, off the bat, actually, you know what, maybe coaching is not what, what you need. Um, so I'm still kind of curious about uh, how, how ex- obviously you're making it more accessible for black queer folk to access you as a coach, access Healing While Black. And it sounds like you're getting quite an influx of people how are you 
finding that and, and getting people to come to you? Yeah, I know a lot of the clients that I originally had just were, they even saw the work that I was doing on social media they, and they were resonating to it. Um, they felt, um, they felt that, yeah, this is, this is the space that feels aligned to me. And I see that you're having conversations um, broadly about the intersection of Black masculinity, Black queer men, um, massage noir, and how to be in divestment from patriarchy. All these things were things I was doing before I considered coaching. So knowing that that was already the track record that I had, um, when I first put out the call, I did receive an influx, but then also knowing that, you know, life starts lifing. So I, I want to be able to give folks the care that I can and not just take on people to say that I took them on. Having the cap at some point in time and say, like, hey, you know, I, I'm not able to give this person the best care right now. So I'm able, I'm able to just stop, pause. I'll bring in another cohort in a few months. Um and then saying, hey, I may not be able to work with you, but I know a couple of folks who can, right? I know there are a lot of support groups uh, through Black Men Heal or through Rooted, the uh, the wellness studio that I, um, I used to attend back in Albany. Being able to know that, hey, if you can't do it, you have a wealth of people who can. And again, as you're speaking to what your duty is as a, as a, as a person who people are coming to for care, it is really imperative that you know what you have the capacity for, what you don't have the capacity for. And you really need to make that clear what with uh, people that you're coming to. And now, again, not perfect, right? Made mistakes and having somebody say like, yeah, you know, like, I don't think this is working out. Having clients say like, yeah, this isn't working out for X, Y, and Z reason. And being like, I get it, right? I understand. I appreciate you. I would love to uh, help you refer or help you get a referral somewhere else, but also realizing that, yeah, like you are not a, you are not an end all be all and you cannot be that uh, overtaken by your ego to think that somebody doesn't have the right to say like, actually, you know what? You're not the person for me or I can work with you in this capacity, but I don't want to work with you in this capacity, but I'm rambling. I'll, I'll just stop there. That's, that's, um, it resonates so much. I think it's, it's amazing. Um, and it's a really important point I saw on, on your website, you know, the first thing that you're looking at is contracting. And we talk about that a lot and make sure people are aware of what, what you can and can't do, where you can, you know, jump off and you might, you might not be the right fit. And that's um, so, so important, I think, in terms of making it a safe space for someone. In your, you know, really particular field, talking about kind of being black and queer and, and um, black masculinity, are you seeing or noticing any kind of patterns in the work and the people that come to you in terms of, you know, struggles they might have, trauma they might be facing? Um, unfortunately, uh, yes, in that a lot of the folks who I was talking to, uh, a lot of the folks that I, w I was working with uh, were experiencing similar struggles around this need to provide, so to speak. And if they weren't able to, um, this 
the seemingly the seeming indictment on their masculinity because they weren't able to do this or they weren't able to pay for that and they weren't able to give their you know family partner what they needed and that being seen as an indictment on their masculinity um being chastised or or ridiculed for not fitting into this rigid standard of what masculinity looks like um in the, at least in a in a patriarchal standpoint i don't want to put the quotations up but um knowing knowing that there was a lot of of internal conflict around what i should be doing as a man but also reconciling that no like my i am not a i'm not a heterosexual man and i do not believe in those tenets of of quote unquote traditional masculinity but it's still really hard to live in my fullness and in my truth when i don't live in a space that is safe or affirming to do that and it's sometimes easier to mask and move through the world in ways that are more quote unquote acceptable as it pertains to my masculinity so a lot of those conversations are things that i've had to work through too i still work through um those are some of the patterns that are brought up around like what what does that look like to live safely live authentically and live in in ways that are not uh in allegiance to patriarchy I love that you mentioned authenticity there and it, when you're talking about kind of some of those standards uh, refer back to um, one of my recent solo podcasts and I talked about being a very young poor man who insisted on paying for everything for the girlfriend who worked at the same place but worked double the hours um, not because she wanted that just because that's what I felt I had to do which in hindsight it was completely ridiculous but we were talking about 21 years ago and you know me the whole point of that part is actually things you learned or wish you knew yeah, <laughs> when you were yeah. younger and it's those kinds of of things um but yeah authenticity i'm just wondering in your experience if people are living with this mask for so long what what's the turning point or the falling point where you just can't keep that mask up anymore and what is the the kind of the outcome of that mask falling and having to face that um i'll speak i'll speak from the personal um for me the turning point was seeing how much i was sacrificing to appease people who i did not like and that was a really hard thing to do um whether or not it was in college whether or not it was you know in my early 20s I'm just I'm bending and I'm contorting myself, you know, putting on these masks, you know, to move through the world in ways that don't feel aligned to me for for what exactly. And having that moment, I think and I I remember I was I was on a date and um and it was like it was like the worst, like one of the worst days I've ever been on. Probably the worst date I've ever been on. And I just left that date thinking like I don't even I really don't even like this person. Like I don't like this person at all. Like we don't we're not aligned. We don't read the same things. We don't listen to the same things. We don't we have at, 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 and it was clear through that that date that we are very much so out of alignment in regards to our politics as it pertains to whose black lives are centered, whose black lives are 
should be centered. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Right? Why am I doing all this stuff? And it really came to a point where like you kind of see, you know, you ever have those moments where you can like see or project like five years into the future and you can see how your life would turn out if you kept on this path. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the thing that I quote unquote should be doing because I look at myself and I can see myself and I'm miserable, right? I'm, I'm not doing the things that make me happy. I'm not doing the work that makes me happy. And I'm really like actively betraying like myself and the people who I know like and love me. So I need to change something. And I, I know when I talk to a lot of my friends and colleagues and clients, you know, they've had a number of those experiences, a number of those fork in the road moments where they can kind of see how things would shape out um, if they don't shift, if they don't change, um, or if they don't uh, critically examine the world around them as it pertains to how the world views black men and what, um, what our quote unquote utility is. And Realizing that, yeah, I don't want to do this. I don't want to live my life this way. I don't want my life to show, shape out this way. So what has to happen? And, you know, it, it's, it, it's cliche, but, you know, making the right choice is not always easy. And when I say right, I mean, what do I need to do to be in accordance with my values and the life that I want to live? And what are the conversations that I need, I need to have in order to do that? And being very unapologetic in my stances and allowing folks to stay or leave. And a lot of folks, a lot of folks, I don't want to sugarcoat this, right? A lot of folks did leave, right? They just did. And it was really hard. And knowing now, you know, on kind of the back end of that, you know, I, I can say that it was really difficult and I am living the life that 16-year-old Josh, like, dreamed about, right? Like, I know for a fact, I say all the time on my, on my Instagram, like, like 16-year-old Josh would think 27-year-old Josh is, like, the coolest nigga out. Like, he would be, like, <laughs> so impressed and, and enamored with the life that we're living because we didn't turn our back on ourselves. That's awesome. Josh, I'm, I'm sad to say that we are coming to the end of our time and I knew we'd run out of time I knew I was going to have a great conversation <laughs> with you before we end I'd love for you to share what you think are kind of the best resources for um, anybody who's listening who is just new to to this space um, you know, particularly around um, black LGBTQ plus um, and understanding more uh, or anybody who identifies in this space where to point them particularly please plug healing while black as well yeah uh, i shall and also plug a lot of my homies um jewel the gem um the black infinity collective um i would plug ty cooper i would plug uh express yourself black man i would plug um black men heal i would plug if you are not if you have not read uh, anything by Bell Hooks, please do so. Um, I would plug a lot of my peoples who are doing this work and doing the work in ways that are aligned with their spirit and aligned with spirit in general. Um, and 
I can go down the list. <laughs> I know we don't have time to go to all the places, but I, I start there and I would love to just uh, offer myself in whatever way I can. If there's any, you know, readings, any things I can share uh, to help individuals uh, get connected to resources or get connected to uh, pieces that, that, that helped and shaped me, I would be more than happy to. Amazing, Josh. And where can uh, can anyone kind of find you? Uh, it's Instagram, Twitter. Where's your uh, Where's the best place? Yeah, I'm uh, most active on Instagram, so you can follow me at Healing Wild Black. I'm also on Twitter, but not uh, as frequently. Healing, Healing Wild Black. Uh, the Black is spelled B L K, and then you can also uh, reach me at my website, HealingWildBlack.me, and you can also reach me via email there. It's just Josh at HealingWildBlack.me. Josh, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you're doing. Uh, I've had a blast. Um, As I said, not enough time, but really, (laughs) really pleased to to have had you on the podcast. Guys, you've been listening to the Dope Black Dads podcast, and we'll see you next time. Dope Black Podcast. 